Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the servant, You may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I just want to stop there for a moment. Um, This is the history of temptation for the people of God down through the ages. To doubt the word of God and to doubt the character of God. And all of our hurt and trouble comes to our lives because we doubt that God is good and we doubt that God has spoken. We see this started in the temptation in the garden and woven now throughout the history of the people of God. Picking up then at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and he said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God spoke to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. 
Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Father, thank you for this opportunity to gather around your word. And as I read a text like this, I am so thankful that you have told us about our world. I'm so thankful that you have not left us in the dark. I am so thankful that you have not left us to ourselves and to our own sinful ways. I am so thankful that you have not left us to flounder in despair. But in a passage such as this, we get a glimpse of the whole reality of the world in which we live, the universe in which we are part of. We get a glimpse of the grace and mercy and the plan of God. We get a glimpse of the power of evil. It explains so much to us. So thank you, Father, for this word. And as we now look at a portion of it, I pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things that are recorded there. That would be a help to us, an encouragement to us as we reflect on Christmas, as we reflect on our life, as we reflect on what you have done for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 3 is uh, such a critical chapter in all of the Bible. There are few chapters in the Bible that have such the same kind of weight and importance that Genesis chapter 3 have. Some might turn to Isaiah 53, which I think is the gospel to the Jewish people. Uh, You might turn to Romans chapter 8 and think about that amazing passage of Scripture that uh, describes our security in Christ and our freedom from sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a beautiful chapter of Scripture. But Genesis chapter 3 has been called by some the seed plot of the Bible. Uh, By that, they're simply saying that in Genesis chapter 3 are contained all of the revelations, all of the the main storylines that are to be revealed in the word of the Lord to come. It helps us understand why the universe is the way that it is, why humans are the way that they are, um, why we need a Savior, why there are the problems there are that in the world, why there are difficulties in relationships with one another. It's all found in Genesis chapter 3. And one of the amazing things to me as you read Genesis chapter 3 is you find it not found anywhere else in the Old Testament. That such a significant passage of Scripture to my understanding, is not referred to anywhere else in the Old Testament. I find that rather amazing. Genesis chapter 3 sets the stage and sets the storyline now for redemptive history. When I use that word redemptive history, what I mean by that is that God has determined that he will save those who will put their faith and trust in Christ. And there is a plan of salvation. There is a plan of redemption. And so the Bible is all about that plan of how God will save us and redeem us. And so the promise is made in this particular chapter of a deliverer that is to come and of of how that deliverer will defeat Satan and will provide salvation for his people. And the rest of the Bible helps us understand this story of this great deliverer. And in fact, it helps us understand how we will get back to Eden. 
If you understand the end of the book of Revelation, I believe that Revelation, the last two chapters of Revelation is talking about a return to Eden. And in fact, all of the world now, the new heavens and the new earth, will be in fact Eden. And so it, the story of the Bible is how we were kicked out of Eden and how we will make our way back to the Garden of Eden. As one person wrote, there lies within this particular chapter, as an oak lies within an acorn, all the great truths that make up the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we had time, and and, there's so many different ways we could approach this chapter, but we could look at the doctrines that are revealed in this particular chapter alone. The doctrine of the mystery of the incarnation. Again, by the incarnation we mean when God took upon human flesh and came down and was born as a child in this world. That's the incarnation. We could talk about how one becomes saved and one becomes born again as a child of God. We could talk about the virgin birth. We could talk about this doctrine of two seeds that are contained here. We could talk about the sufferings of Christ, which are written in this particular chapter of Scripture. We could talk about the defeat of Satan. All of the gospel is contained in this one single chapter. And in fact, it's even squeezed into one verse that we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at this morning. One of the intriguing things about this chapter of Scripture, too, in this particular verse that we're going to look at, is that this is what people call the, the first gospel proclamation in the Scripture. It is the first time that God promises to send a deliverer and that he will save people. We find the gospel then repeated again and again and again throughout the Bible, but this is the very first time it's proclaimed. And the interesting thing about its proclamation is that it is proclaimed in the midst of judgment. And what's even more interesting is that the gospel is first proclaimed not uh, to to, uh, uh, Adam and Eve, but it's proclaimed to Satan, the devil, the ancient serpent. God proclaims the gospel to the fallen angel, the devil. The first promise of God's great salvation is contained in these words of judgment then to this ancient serpent, Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. I find that amazing. And I can't figure it out other than to say that the, the, the mercy of God is always found within the judgment of God. And what even amazes me more, that is, before God even talks to Adam and Eve, after they have sinned so grievously against Him, before He even talks to them, He's already talking about grace and mercy. He's already talking about how He is going to save them, how He is going to make a way for them to come back to Himself. Before He even talks to them about judgment. Loved ones, when people say there is no God of grace and mercy in the Bible... I don't know what they're talking about. This is one of the first places that we find it, of God speaking to Satan. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. That's where I want to camp for a bit of time this morning. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. A text full of grace and hope. A text full of the character and the power of God. A text that points us to both Christmas and to the cross. This is both a Christmas and an Easter text 
For we found, find both of those things spoken of in this short verse. And it's astounding to me, and I guess it makes sense, that the God of this universe, the God who has created language and, and, and has created communication, that he could so succinctly and so perfectly, in a way that nobody else could ever do, in, a, in the course of a few words, he could describe the beauty and the majesty of salvation in such a few short words. And in fact, I think it's in part what Paul writes about when he writes in Ephesians chapter 3 to the church and he talks to them about the great privilege that he has to be a minister of the gospel, the great privilege that he has to tell other people about Jesus Christ and the fact that they can be saved by putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so he says to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, grace, this grace was given to me. What is the grace that was given to him? The grace to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ to bring to light for everyone what is the plan and the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And then this amazing phrase, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. To who? Who is the manifold wisdom of God in salvation made known to? To the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. I think this is what was first in seed plot being told to the evil one who thought he had thwarted God's plan, who thought he had destroyed humanity. God begins to make known to him the manifold riches of salvation in Christ Jesus. So again, I find it strange that in a passage and in a text like this, in the midst of words of judgment, we find incredible words of grace and of mercy. The first thing that we find in this passage is there's this divine initiative in which God declares that things will never be peaceful. He sovereignly establishes hostility. Uh, the first blush that, that makes us wince a little bit because we think, well, no, God is a God of peace. God is a God that brings divided parties together. But here we find in this very first verse, know that God is one who establishes hostility. The word is actually enmity. And enmity is a feeling of hatred. It's a deep-seated ill will. It's a, it's a sense of hostility. And so when you read Genesis 3.15... You read what God says to the evil one. He says, I will put enmity. This is God's doing. This hostility, this, this anger, this ill will. This is God's doing. And loved ones, what I want you to understand, if, if I can explain it and, and make it true to you, that if you can understand, this is a gift of grace. This is one of the first signs of grace is that God establishes hostility between the serpent and the woman. See, when Satan was thrown down, and we read this in Revelation chapter 12, when he was thrown down initially, it said that a third of the angels went with him. And, and they went with him willingly. They went with him, um, um, uh, sort of uh, supporting him. 
And from that time on, they have always been supportive of him. They have always been willing of the, of the, of the uh, task and the, the, uh, the intention behind what Satan's trying to do. They are loyal to him. They choose association with him. And their doom was forever sealed, for they would forever be at peace with the evil one. When Satan succeeded in deceiving the woman and causing the man to sin, there must have been this thought in his mind, Aha! I've done it again! I've succeeded in in thwarting God's creation. I have now made humanity my friends. I have now made this wonderful relationship between the two of us. But God had something different in mind. It says he put hostility between the serpent and the woman. He made them at odds with one another. And that's what we read, is it not, in Revelation chapter 12? How the, saint, how, the, how, how the serpent, Satan, the devil, tried to kill the woman who was about to give birth. And how he tried to kill the offspring of the woman. When Satan was able to seduce Adam and Eve away from the worship of God, what he wasn't able to do was win their allegiance. And was, was, wasn't able to win their worship. And so God created this divine hostility, which really was a gift of preservation and provision, so that men and women would never be comfortable with evil. I am so glad that God has done that. I am so glad that I cannot sin well. I am so glad that I cannot join forces with the evil one and commit evil acts and feel good about it. And that has its, has its seed all the way back to the very first promise of the gospel that God makes in the garden here. And in a very real sense, I believe Satan was bound here. He was restricted by God to how far he could go with men and women. And so at Christmas time, and we started off, and we sung it, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Loved ones, this is a joyous time. We ought to be full of joy and gratitude and thankfulness because Christ the Savior has come. But I would also say that we ought to be thankful to God for the hatred of sin and for the disdain of evil. And for a revulsion of that kind of stuff, for an innate sense of this is wrong, or I can't like this, because that is the gift of God to us, so that we don't find it easy to be friends of the evil one. He says that he will do this between you and the woman. That there is this hostility between, between Eve and Adam. And I've already said it. It appears when you read the first part of Genesis and you don't know the rest of the story, it appears that they were good kind of buddies. That they were just chatting it up in the garden. There was no sense of fear uh, in Eve's voice. There was no sense of dismay. There's almost this kind of innocent naivety. Well, God has told me this and you're telling me this. And, you know, well, you might be right and God might be right. And there's this sort of, there's, there's no sense of, of intrepidation there. She trusted the serpent. They had talked together as friends. But, oh, thank God that that was not fixed. Because God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Loved ones, I see this as mercy and grace. What had come so easily for Eve would never come easily again for mankind. Yes, there was once peace. But that peaceful relationship had made it easy for them to believe the lies of Satan. So God said, I will put enmity between you and a woman. 
I like to think, and I, I don't think it's wrong to think this way. I think this is God's way of saying, Eve, you are mine. It's maybe even his way of speaking specifically to Eve and of giving her hope. Yes, you have disobeyed. Yes, you have grieved me. But I'm going to change your heart so that rather than want to be a friend of the evil one, you will want to be a friend of mine. And I believe this is God's way of opening the door of salvation initially to Eve and to all of her descendants. The second thing that he says there is, I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. This is a huge um, sort of area to think about in itself, but there's sort of a we collectively there between your seed and her seed. There, there's, there's, uh, there's an indication now that there's, there's, there's going to be two lines of people. There's going to be two seeds. There's going to be two offsprings. And loved ones, we make the world a very difficult place to live in. But the Bible makes it a very simple thing. There are only two ways. There is the broad way and there is the narrow way. There are only two offspring. There is the offspring of the evil one and the offspring of God. There is only righteousness and wickedness. This is what's described throughout the Bible. And we make it complicated. But in the end of the day, there are only two ways. There are only two people. There are only two kingdoms. There are only two offsprings. And he says, between your offspring and her offspring, I will create enmity. Not only was Eve going to hate Satan and love God, but future generations born to Adam and Eve, a redeemed humanity, would also be at odds with Satan and in love with God. Not only has Satan not captured permanently Adam and Eve, but he hasn't permanently captured humanity either. Because God says, I will create this enmity between your offspring and her offspring. Now we need to, you know, we need to think here, and there's a lot going on in this passage, but this is not talking about Satan reproducing. It's not talking about Satan going out and making more little demons or more little angels that follow him, nor is he talking about his ability to reproduce with humans in any matter. He's not the father of demons. Rather, God, as I've said, is saying there are going to be two groups of people. Those who are in Christ and those who are in, in the first Adam. Those who, 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 who follow and walk in the line of Christ and those who follow and walk in the line of the darkness and the kingdom of darkness. Remember, we read Revelation 12:17. You might have picked it up uh, as I read it. Then the dragon became furious with the woman, it says, and went off to make war with her offspring. There's the hostility, this divine hostility that God has placed between the people of God and between the armies of the evil one. On the one hand, we have the line of Seth and the godly descendants all the way down through Christ. Uh, and, and our father is the father above. And then you have the line of Cain, influenced by Satan. And, and all who are in that line, their father is the devil. And Jesus says so much when he's talking to the Pharisees. And he says to them, you are of your father, the devil. What does he mean by that? Well, he says, your will is to do your father's desire, the father below, which is the evil one. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and a father of liars. And so Jesus is accusing the Pharisees and the Sadducees of being a liars. And he's saying, that is your father. So there's the offspring from the line of Cain and there's the offspring from the line of Seth. And all humanity falls into one of these two camps. 
if we had time this morning, and I only can read you a few verses, but this, this helps me understand so many scriptures then as we, as we read the Bible. For instance, John 15, uh, 18. And Jesus is there talking to his disciples. And he says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Where does this hatred come from? This was a divinely inspired hatred by God in the garden. He goes on, he says, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, and I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This is a description that takes us all the way back to Genesis 3.15. Describes why the world hates us. Because God has said, it will never be, uh, there will never be peaceful relationships. Anymore with the evil one. Matthew 6.18 And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That clearly indicates there's a battle. There's a battle between hell and the people of God. There's a battle between the gates of hell and the church of God. James 4.4 You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? There's that word again. Enmity with God. Hostility with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There it is again, the the two camps, the the two seeds, the two lines. So this enmity is a gift of God because it drives us towards God. It pushes us towards God so that we seek refuge in him. We might call it a beneficial enmity or a beneficial hatred. I was reading, and and I'll quote it. I was going to try and summarize it, but I I, I read this, and I I thought this is so helpful. By way of encouragement in pursuing the Christian life, I would say to young people, and I would want to brought it, and I would I would say it um, by 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 I would say to the people of God, expect to be troubled. If you have fallen into trouble because of being a Christian, be encouraged by it. Do not, all, do not at all regret or fear it, but rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for this is a constant token of the covenant. In other words, that's a reminder that you are in relationship with God. If you are suffering, if you are hated, if you are being given a hard time because you're a Christian, he says rejoice, because that's a sign that you're a child of God. And he goes on and he says, there is enmity between you and the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent still. And if you did not experience any of it, you might begin to fear that you are on the wrong side. Astute. Now that you are smart under the, or now that you smart under the sneer of sarcasm and oppression, rejoice and triumph. For now you are partakers with the glorious seed of the woman in the bruising of his heel. I love that. The fact that sometimes we suffer because we are children of God, we suffer because we belong to the church, is a reminder that we are of the offspring of the woman. The decisive blow, Satan and evil will be crushed. It says in the latter part of verse 15 there, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is, this, is this, this is the story of champion kind of stuff. This is hero stuff. You know, if, if any of you kind of follow big hero characters or, you know, um, uh, you know uh, sort of comic book heroes, this is the best hero ever. It says, here, it says here, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Who are we talking about? Who is the he here? Who is the he who will crush the head and whose heel is it that will be bruised? It's none other than Jesus Christ. 
You see, this verse is already pointing ahead to the work of Jesus Christ, to the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross, to the attacks of Satan upon Jesus Christ. This is a beautiful reminder of the gospel and an illustration of what is taking place. There's no need of suspense. It's clearly taught. This is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who will crush the serpent's head and whose heel will be bruised. It's not usual to talk about the seed of the woman. That's not normal language. We talk about the seed of the man. Even biologically, we talk about the seed of the man. But there's reasons why we, we talk about the seed of the woman here. And I, I am one who believe, although I, I, I won't die on it, we're not going to spend a lot of time on it this morning. In fact, we won't spend any time. But I think that this points to the virgin birth. I think this is already a reference to not only the humanity of Christ, that he will be from the seed of the woman, but it talks to us uniquely about the fact that, that he will be born of the woman. And it speaks of the virgin birth and the uniqueness of his birth. Certainly, this is how we see the Bible talked in many ways about the humanity of Christ and the uniqueness of his birth. Hebrews 2.14 Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he likewise partook of the same things, of flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. The prophecy given in Isaiah 7.14 Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel. And then we go to the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, and we find there clearly again a reference to the virgin birth. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Shout you, therefore the child to be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. I see this, 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 this Genesis 3.15 also worked out in Galatians 4.4. 4. It says there, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son to be born of a woman. Under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is, this is the, the first gospel promise. It's rich, loved ones. I thought briefly, I had a conversation on 1 Timothy 2, 13 to 15, and I went away and I thought about it a little bit more. And this is a passage that maybe has troubled some of you. I, I continue to wrestle with it and try and understand it. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, Paul writes. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. I think we find an understanding and interpretation of that passage in Timothy back in Genesis 3.15. So this is the first gospel promise. And it sent Satan on a rampage. It sent Satan on this rampage throughout history to, to see if he could thwart the promise of God. And it wasn't until I think that he knew that Mary would be the, the actual bearer of the child of God that he knew who it was. But up until that point, he had no idea. And so he was just raging against the covenant people of God, trying to destroy the sons and the sons that were born of the women. Martin Luther, who loved this portion of scripture, said, God never told the devil who he would be. And so Luther goes on to say, the devil has lived in dread of every woman's son who was a believer, especially those in the covenant line, because he never knew who he would be. And if you study the history of Israel, you see how many times Satan tried to destroy the godly line of the people in the covenant. Even after the birth, Satan bruised the heel of Christ. 
You see the tremendous grief that was brought about as Herod, satanically inspired, killed all the children, boys under two years old in the region of Bethlehem. You see how Satan then took Jesus out in the wilderness to tempt him. And you remember those temptations. All of them were based on the word of God again. And then you see Satan as he tempts Jesus in the, in, the, in, the, in the garden. And then as Satan fills Judas to betray Jesus. And then on the cross as all the forces of the evil one through both human and, and, and through spiritual world were arrayed against Jesus. And Satan was there crushing or bruising the heel of Christ. And I'm sure, loved ones, that the moment that Jesus died on the cross, the evil one thought that he had crushed the head. But we know the story of the scriptures, do we not? That in the moment that as Jesus was dying, he was in fact crushing the head of Satan. That as he was dying on the cross, the penalty of our sins was being paid. The redemption of mankind was being affected. The wrath of God towards our sins was being received in his own body. And when Jesus finally breathed his last, he said, it is finished. The battle was over. The victory was won. This was a purposeful bruising. Isaiah 53 tells us he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. There was even a deeper bruising that took place on the cross. Because in Isaiah 53.10 we read that it was the will of God to crush him the will of God to bruise him. He has put him to grief. And then listen to this though. When his soul makes an offering for his guilt, or for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Loved ones, even as Christ was dying on the cross, he was seeing the fulfillment of this promise that there would be an offspring through the woman. On the cross, his power was broken. The moment of his triumph, of the evil one's triumph, was actually the moment of his defeat. John Gerstner, he's now died as a Reformed theologian, called Satan the greatest blockhead that the world has ever known. He says, the very fact that he is probably the most intelligent being ever created makes him the greatest blockhead. For he was supremely stupid to suppose that he could outthink the all-wise or overpower the Almighty. Thank God that he knows the beginning from the end. Thank God that he determines the beginning from the end. And there's that great promise that we hang on to as the people of God that the victory has been accomplished on the cross, but there is coming a day when the God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. And as Revelation chapter 20 tells us that he will take the evil one and he will cast him forever into the lake of fire. And the battle and the enmity and the hostility will be ended.